0: hey guys welcome back and congratulations for making it all the way to the end of the study it is no small feat to work through a whole book of the bible i really hope that you've been blessed by this and that you've learned things that are not only going to stick in your mind but that are also going to change the way that you live because really that's the goal that's the point of studying the bible it's not just to grow our minds it's not just to have head knowledge but it's so that that head knowledge can transform us and come out in the way that we live it makes us it makes us better. It's going to make us um, look more like Jesus. Um, So I hope that that is what is happening for you all as you've studied the book of James. Today we are going to wrap up with chapter five of James, which is the last chapter of the book. Um, So far, just for a review, we have seen that James has laid out two paths that trials and suffering can bring us down. That first path is the one that leads to spiritual growth, um, and that second path is the one that leads to sin and death. So we've seen all through the letter the ways that James's original audience was on the second path and the the way that they had let their trials and struggles lead them to sin and away from godliness. And then last week we got to chapter 4 where James presents his readers with a pretty strongly worded call to repentance. And then he circles back around to some more sin that really revealed where their hearts were. So today we're going to see how James wraps up this whole letter and what it looks like when our hearts are on that first path, the good path, the one that leads to godliness and spiritual wholeness. So let's jump in and we're going to start with verses one through six and see how the letter progresses. Chapter five, verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. <clears throat> so last week we kind of got into some grammar which I'm guessing that some of you loved some of you just tuned out completely and some of you hated and that's okay I know that that stuff um, some of you love it and some of you don't I'm not gonna go quite as in-depth here but I do want to point out how verse 1 starts James says come now you rich in most of his letter he addresses his readers as brothers. He does that throughout the whole letters. So then whenever he's changing subjects or really wants to emphasize something, he calls them out. He says, "Okay, brothers." We talked about that last week. Now, whenever he changes the way he addresses them, there's always a reason why. Like last week in chapter four, he changed it and he addressed them as you adulterous people. And there was a reason. He was showing them that he was changing this tone. He's ch- calling them something different because he's starting a pretty strong rebuke. He wanted them to have ears that perked up and heard what he was about to say. Um, We kind of saw this imagery from the Old Testament, um, how it pointed to God and his people being like a marriage relationship. And so we know when he says, you adulterous people, that imagery from the marriage relationship in the Old Testament kind of tells us that that rebuke was meant towards believers. He was rebuking the believers there back in chapter four. Then last week, we kind of got to verse 14. I mean, chapter four, verse 13, um, James was addressing a certain group of people because he changes his address again. and He said, come now, you who say. So in that portion last week, he was addressing that specific group of people. It was wealthier believers that were living like they were the ultimate authority in their life. They weren't submitting their lives wholly to the Lord of Christ. So we had a come now you who say. We'll look at the beginning of chapter one. This is the very next section, and it's gonna start in a way that pretty much parallels that last section. So verse 413 said, come now you, And that was a come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. Now in chapter five, we have another come now you. We have come now you rich. So James is continuing to address specific groups of people. Um, Both of these sections are also addressing wealthier people. So it's helpful to remember when we approach both of these sections that most of his original audience was not wealthy. So he's addressing a small group of people here. So most of his audience were aliens living in foreign lands. They were often in poverty and they were often oppressed by wealthy landowners around them. So last week, we kind of pointed out that the wealthy people he addressed in verse 413, that section last time, those are typically believed by scholars to be Christians. So he thought last week that that section he was saying, come now, you who, um, you know, who say this, he's talking to Christians who were just kind of not really submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Well here most scholars believe with the beginning of chapter 5 that he's moved away to a different group of wealthy people. Not wealthy Christians anymore, but now he's probably moved to all the wealthy non-Christians who are persecuting believers. Now how do we know that? Well there's a few clues. When we read verses 1-6 through together, that whole passage that we just read, we see that James isn't addressing all rich people. It's not the wealth here that James is condemning, it's the sinful use of wealth. Verse four says, <clears throat> behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. That statement is not a statement that applies to all wealthy people. So he's clearly talking to a specific group of wealthy people who have done this action. He seems to be addressing the, the wealthy people, the rich people who owned land and who are cheating their laborers, who are were, who were working their fields. Now, why does that description sound familiar? Hopefully you remember that this is one of the big ways that the displaced Christians were being persecuted and struggling. They had very few options available for them for income in these foreign lands, and all the wealthy landowners in these foreign lands were taking advantage of them and not paying them fairly. So there probably would have been very few, if any, believers that were in the dispersion. So this letter was addressed to the believers in the dispersion, the believers who had been displaced, not many, if any, of those believers would have had their own fields and would have been in a position to hire laborers. So most likely when James addresses this section to the rich in verse one, he's addressing the rich foreigners who are oppressing his original readers. So his original readers would have most likely identified themselves as the laborers who mowed the fields and whose wages were kept back by fraud mentioned in verse four. And it's interesting because there's very little chance that these rich people that he's addressing here would have ever read this letter. They weren't believers. They weren't in the church. So they would not have been in the gatherings when this letter was written. So why would James have wanted his readers to see what he would have told their suppressor, their oppressors? So he's addressing them, this section to people who aren't going to hear it, but he wants his readers to hear it. It's there for a reason. Well, think about the reason for all of their sin struggles that he has addressed so far throughout the letters. What have they been seeing as the answer to their problems? Wealth. Who are are they wanting to be like? The wealthy people who are persecuting them. We've seen that rather than looking to God and looking to the spiritual wealth that comes from seeking him through times of suffering, they were looking to an end of poverty as their goal and some degree of wealth as their savior. They were angry, they were speaking rash words because of these hardships. They were showing partiality towards the rich. They were ignoring the poor in their gatherings, probably because they would benefit more from the rich. They were seeking positions of honor and esteem all for the wrong reasons. They were jealous of each other and they were driven by selfish ambition. So to me, it seems like James wants to really make sure his readers are seeing the emptiness of what they're doing, that they're seeing the emptiness of this false savior of wealth that they had been looking to. He tells them super clearly here that riches rot. Nice clothes will be eaten by moths. Gold and silver will be corroded. These are the things that you're looking to, well look what's gonna happen to them. But you know what riches never rot? is spiritual ones. I want you to think back about the introduction in chapter one. James tells his readers in verses nine through 11, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So we talked back in week two, back when we covered this chapter, we talked about how James was showing them in this passage, the emptiness of the riches that they were looking to. And that when we turn our eyes off of the empty promises of the world, we can focus then on letting our trials lead us to steadfastness in our faith faith, so that we will be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. That was all back in chapter one in the introduction. And we're kind of circling back to the exact same thing here. He's kind of saying the same thing again. He has spent his entire letter showing them exactly how they have been looking to earthly riches as a false savior. And now he's circling back in this ending chapter to the emptiness of riches as he winds down his letter. This beginning section of chapter five, verses one through six that we just read, feels kind of like a more passionately worded repeat of what he said in chapter one. Because now his readers were hopefully more primed to hear it and let it really sink in and realize, oh, these words are for me. I know now I need this. I need to hear this because I've been living differently. Um, In chapter one, he says the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now in chapter five, he says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten and your garments are moth eating, uh, moth eaten. So you can see this difference. He says it pretty soft in the introduction, but now that he has walked them through their sin and their idolatry and made their, hopefully opened their eyes to that he's speaking to them here and they need to hear this, now he's not holding anything back because his readers needed to hear what he would say to their oppressors. They needed to hear these words that he was speaking to the wealthy foreigners who were taking advantage of, them as, advantage of them as cheap labor. Not only because it was encouraging to them, like it's encouraging to know, hey, these people who are oppressing you, they're going to be judged eventually. God hears your prayers. Yeah, that's encouraging. But we, he also needed them to hear those words because we've seen so much evidence that his readers wanted to be like those wealthy people. They envied them. So yeah, James is giving them assurance. Hey, your oppressors are going to be judged. Their riches are only temporary. And I think he's telling them that first to make them feel better as the ones who are being oppressed. I mean, it's encouraging to know that the Lord is hearing their cries. He's comforting them a lot here. But I think the second reason he wants them to hear this is to help them stop seeing wealth as the answer, to stop envying the rich and wanting to be like them because that temptation is what was derailing their spiritual growth and then leading them down the second path of sin. Now that leads us to the next section of the chapter uh, where James tells them to be patient brothers. Now this isn't a general piece of advice. He's not just saying patience in general is a good thing, although we know that it is. James says, be patient therefore. So he's telling them in light of everything he just said about corrupt rich people who are taking advantage of them, that the Christians he is addressing should be patient. So let's read this next section, and then we can start breaking it down some more. So I'm going to pick it back up in verse 7, and we're going to read chapter five, 5, verses 7 through 11. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. All right, so we see, um, see again, hopefully you're starting to notice all these throwbacks back to the introduction. I mean, we see, job being commended for his steadfastness this whole idea of steadfastness is what we talked about back in chapter one a lot of this ending chapter is circling back to what he said in chapter one Um, like we pointed out a minute ago verse seven says be patient therefore so let's make sure we read these verses in the right context look at the flow of this the letter as a whole james tells them that suffering should produce spiritual fruit then he shows that instead of leaning into God, they had no patience to endure their situation. They were angry. They were turning on each other. They were speaking rash words. They were favoring those who could benefit their situation in some way and treating those who couldn't with contempt. They were seeking status for all the wrong reasons. James calls them to repent of all this. He shows them that grasping for wealth and status isn't the answer. And then says, instead, says that instead of doing all these things that they had been doing to try to escape their situation, that they should be patient. They should establish their hearts and wait for the coming of the Lord instead of chasing temptation into all these areas of sin that they had been doing. Don't grumble against one another because of your trials. Don't treat each other in a sinful way because of your hardships, he's saying. Instead, set your heart and mind on the Lord and be patient for what he is bringing about. We see in this section that James mentions Job. If you don't know who Job is, there's a whole book of the Bible, it's called Job, and it tells in detail this um, this account of the suffering that God led Job through. It was extreme suffering. This was not light momentary suffering. This was hard stuff that Job went through. And even though throughout the whole book we see Job questioning God and wrestling with God and complaining, we see Job is not perfect. He is completely human, but through it all his faith endured. So James wants his readers to see that Job, with all that he went through, his trials did not lead him to abandon his faith. Um, <clears throat> so what does this mean? What does this idea of being patient during suffering mean? Like what does that mean for me in my life, practically speaking? What does it mean if I'm going through a difficult trial? Does that mean that it's wrong for me to do anything to try to make my situation better? Should I sit passively back and just let what happens happens? Like if suffering produces this good thing, should I just wait and hope suffering happens to me and then don't do anything to stop it when it does? No, I don't think that's at all what James is saying. He doesn't ever talk about that it being wrong that to try to get out of suffering it's not the getting out of the suffering that james seems to rebuke it's when our suffering leads us to sinful behavior when we turn to sinful behavior to end the suffering or we compromise our faith in order to escape the suffering that's when it becomes a problem Here's an example of what I mean. Like this is kind of how this has played out in my life. Um, And I know I I talk about my infertility, you know, often because that's just my story. That's the the primary way that suffering has has played a part in my life. Um, So that's the easy one for me to go to. Most of you guys know, you've probably heard me say, me and Jeremy have struggled with infertility for the past 13 years. We've got two amazing boys through foster and adoption, um, but we've never been able to have biological children. And now patience in this struggle, Um, what I think it does not mean, I do not think that to be patient means that I should never go to the doctor to see what's going on. I don't think patience means not pursuing fertility treatments. Patience does not mean that we shouldn't try certain fertility medications or certain fertility treatments to fix the problem because these things are okay. They're good. These are good gifts that God has given us. He's given, he's blessed doctors with smart brains and technology that all the technology to do this would not be available unless God, you know, allowed it. And so you're not pursuing, if you're not pursuing sin, then I think that it's okay to do things to ease suffering or to get out of suffering. Um, Now, on the other hand, this is where we cross the line what if i were to start to let my struggle with infertility to cause me to resent jeremy or him to resent me and we started to treat each other way in a way that doesn't honor god if we start taking out our frustrations with our suffering on each other and we're no longer loving each other um, the way that god calls us to do well now we've kind of crossed into this area of letting our suffering lead us into sin um, because our impatience um, with having biological kids is is wearing on us um, also, we could let easily let our patience with having biological kids cause our relationships with other couples who seem just extra fertile to be strained. Like, it's, it's, am I still happy for my friends when they are pregnant and having baby showers? Like can I celebrate with my friends? Or am I letting my suffering cause me to not be able to love um, my brother and sister in Christ well? That's a problem if I can't still love others. Um, it would be easy to create such an idol out of getting pregnant that we could become reckless with our finances. You could easily go into tremendous debt pursuing facility treatments. Typically insurance does not cover it and they are not cheap. You could spend easily like tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. Now, if you have that money, you still have to go to the Lord and ask, how do I steward your your The money that you've given me? Well. And if we're going to start neglecting tithing, neglecting um, even just basic wisdom with our finances and start to like not take care of our children that we have in our home because we're so obsessed with pursuing all these fertility treatments, I think that then we've created an idol that is causing us to not um, steward our money well. And so that's another way that we can start to cross over into that second path there and let let our idolatry lead us into sin. sin. Um, Also, there's a lot of fertility treatments out there that um, people are all over the map in what they think is okay and not okay to do. Everybody has different convictions on what they think is ethical or not ethical. Um, I think that that is something that is not to be ignored. And when you're desperate to have children, it's easy to kind of put away your convictions that maybe God has laid on your heart and put away whatever ethics kind of you uh, have impressed upon your heart and um, ignore it for the sake of um, being able to get pregnant. And finally, even adoption. Adoption is, you'd be amazed at how many unethical ways there are to adopt and how much um, corruption has seeped its way into the adoption world. And it's so easy to pursue adoption in ways that hurt other countries or hurt families. Um, but we turn a blind eye because we want it so bad that idol is so strong. Um, and finally, it would be easy to pursue all these things, adoption, um, infertility treatments, everything. It would be easy to pursue all of them Without prayer, without looking to God in any way, and just seeing simply doctors and pregnancy as our only hope and not thinking about God when what we should be doing is seeing God as our only hope, regardless of whether or not we can have children or adopt or have biological kids. We need to see doctors as gifts that God has given us and instruments that God uses how he pleases. So you can see the difference. It's not trying to end my infertility that is the problem. That does not take me off of that first path, because I can, I can try to end my infertility in ways that are God-honoring, by praying, by get, taking advantage of doctors and the gifts that God has given, um, but I can easily cross into that sinful arena and be led down a million different temptations to sin as I wrestle through that struggle. So I hope that that kind of clears up that difference of what patience is and is not. It does not mean, sitting passively back and not doing anything to end your suffering if you're sick you should go to the doctor god has given us doctors if you get robbed call the police i mean if you i mean if you get fired from your job find another job like there's all sorts of things that you should do um, that are wise and that are good and godly but don't let your impatience lead you into areas of idolatry and sin patience means rejecting idolatry and looking to God as our hope and not letting the empty promises of the world lead us to sin one book described this idea of biblical patience as not so much just waiting without anxiety but more as enduring affliction without vengeance or despair I think that's so good enduring affliction without vengeance or despair and patience puts us on the second path that James lays out in his letter the path of temptation and sin Patience, though, is staying on that first path and looking to God and what his promises are for our hope. <clears throat> and that leads us into the last section of the letter, the conclusion, the, the, the true conclusion of the letter. Um, and in true James fashion, he's going to end with a bunch of seeming, seemingly disconnected theological bombs that we can easily get um, caught up in. So let's go ahead and read verses 12 through 20. And we're gonna look at some of these individual topics that, can, that we can kind of get hung up on, and then we're gonna take a step back and look at that conclusion as a whole. So go ahead and read with me verses 12 through 20, the end of the letter. But above all my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. <clears throat> so we start this section with verse 12, which has puzzled a lot of people this whole random sentence about not taking oaths. Um, Now, in researching this, it seems like there's really not a whole lot of agreement on how this verse fits. Some people are wondering, now, does this verse wrap up this last section, is it connected to what we just read, or is this kind of the beginning of this last conclusion section, Um, or is this just kind of meant to stand alone? And people are all over the map, scholars are kind of all over the map in where they think this verse stands. Also, people don't even agree on this above all statement. Like some people say when he says above all my brothers, he's referring just to verse 12. That verse 12 is somehow above the rest. It's the most important. Some people say that this above all my brothers is kind of like encompassing this entire conclusion section, like above all, and then like the list of things that are kind of above all. Um, And then some people say that the words above all aren't actually indicating that what we think, like it's not saying this is the most important command, um, but that the original language is kind of more like saying along the same lines of saying like as to the rest or finally, like it's more of like an indication of the beginning of the conclusion of the letter now again there's not a lot of agreement on all of these things these are all just possibilities there's a lot of ways you can make sense of how verse 12 fits whether this above all um, is really singling out verse 12 or if it's just kind of the introduction to the conclusion Um, and i think that any of these ways that you view it i think they're all good none of them are going to lead you astray um and this just isn't a clear and easy one to place Um, but regardless of how it fits even just the topic itself seems pretty out of place here, this oath thing. So let's take, let's take a minute and focus on that. What is James telling them? What is he saying when he tells them not to swear? First of all, he's not referring to cuss words or bad language. I think when we say don't swear, we're usually meaning like clean up your language. Now that's not what James is talking about. Um, Not to say that we should be, you know, having bad language or anything, but um, that is just not the topic here. He's talking specifically about making oaths. He's repeating something pretty much word for word that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. And so this is not just an isolated time in the New Testament that these words are said. He's quoting Jesus. So we need to take these words um, seriously. And in order to do that, we have to know what he's talking about. Um, We know when we look at the New Testament that not all oaths are bad because there's in the New Testament of Apostles making oaths we even see I think at one point an angel making an oath so what's going on here what is James getting at well, during that time and in that culture, the Pharisees had a practice of making oaths, um, and that practice kind of trickled down to all the people. Um, there were different levels of oath; It was kind of a whole system, if, if you will. Um, there was like you could swear on different things and in different ways, and depending on the different level of the oath or what you swore on, there was different loopholes to get out of that oath. So it really, in a way, wasn't an oath at all, because there was always a loophole, a way to get out of it, depending on how you did it. Um, So what that meant is that you could make an oath or a vow to do something, but then you could use the loopholes to get out of your oath. Now the result in the culture of this was that you could make this big show of making this big, important oath. There was always external things to go along with it. You could use this oath to make yourself look deeply religious or pious, but you could do the oath knowingly in a way that that you would know that you could have a loophole to get out of it. You might make this oath with no intention of actually following through on what you just promised. So this oath system, it was just breeding hypocrisy. And it was, people who were doing this were just showing this huge lack of integrity. It was really another way that they were trying to appear greater than they were and just failing to love their neighbor by being true to their word. It was a huge, blatant picture of being double-minded, which James has been talking about all throughout his letter, being double-minded, kind of living like this, this doubleness. So James tells them, quit doing that, quit trying to look one way, but then truly being another. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. In other words, be honest, have integrity, Follow through on what you say you're going to do. Don't be a person who just makes a big show of looking religious so that others are going to see you a certain way when you really have no intention of following through. Instead, be a person who simply says you're going to do something and then do it. Like oaths were just a way of making yourself appear a certain way. It was really kind of, it kind of makes me think back to that whole. Um, you know, just like wanting to be seen a certain way, pursuing teaching roles for the wrong reasons, um, selfish ambition. It kind of tends to fall, it seems to fall into that same category. And so it's just another way that they were being um, double-minded and not being doers of the word. And it must have been significant enough that he felt the need to include it in a pretty important part of the letter. Um, So that's, I think, how we can kind of maybe it will help inform us on how to look at that section on oaths. There was a reason that he was addressing that specifically. Um, but I think we can still, we, we need to hear that today too. We need to let our yes be yes and no be no, because it's really easy, I think, for us to say that we're going to do something and then not follow through with it as well. Um, then we get to verses 13 through 18, where there's kind of this big section on prayer. There's a lot of instructions on how we're to be praying. And look at what it starts with. It starts with suffering. If anyone among you is suffering, do you see how we're coming full circle from the introduction of the letter? The letter starts with suffering back in chapter one. We've kind of gotten, we've been walked through this whole response to suffering, and now we're coming back to suffering again. We know by now, as we've read the letter, all the pitfalls that we turn to when we're in times of suffering, and we know that suffering can lead us to sin. James spent his whole letter showing what not to do in response to suffering. Now he's gonna end his letter with showing what we should be doing instead when we're suffering. He says, are you suffering? Don't be led into sin, pray. Are you cheerful? Praise God for that too. Are you sick? Have others prayed for you for healing. And notice sick, that's another form of suffering. And so he's using this, this concluding section to turn their eyes upward, turn their eyes upward. Um, when we pray, when we're suffering or when we're sick, we acknowledge that God is our hope. We look to God and not the world. Prayer t- turns our heart towards God and postures us, to be con- postures us to be conformed to his image and to seek his will rather than turning to the world or to sin or to idolatry. Staying on that first path that we saw in the introduction is so hard to do. We have to turn to the Lord in prayer constantly to do it. We have to pray in order to endure trials in a God-honoring way, in a way that produces the steadfastness and perseverance that James talks about. Now, as simple as it seems, yeah, we should pray. Pray in all these circumstances. Well, James kind of tells us all this in a way that can kind of confuse us a bit. He says some things throughout this section um, that we can get hung up on. First, he tells them they should have elders anoint them with oil along with their prayers when they're sick. And that's something that we just aren't really familiar with in our culture. Um, And then after that, he sort of blends physical healing with spiritual healing in a lot of these verses. Um, He kind of says things like praying for the sick is going to lead to their sins being forgiven, um, which can be really confusing. Um, And then finally, he makes it sound like if we're righteous enough or we pray with strong enough faith, then healing is definitely going to happen. So let's address all these issues for a second so that we don't get so hung up on them all. First, why are they supposed to be anointed with oil when they were sick? Well, there's a few explanations that people tend to lean to, and I think that there's two that that I think could both be right. Um, They could probably be right at the same time even. Um, The first one is that during that time, oil was often used for medicinal purposes. It was believed to have really strong healing properties. Um, That was just kind of like a go-to. If somebody was sick um, in some way, they felt like oil was kind of the medicine that you would use. Um, so some people will look at this and say to pray and anoint with oil is kind of like appealing to both the physical and the spiritual it's kind of like saying pray and use medicine like understand that even medicine that God has given us is still under his authority under God's authority so God uses prayer and medicine to combined to heal people and he is the Lord over all of it he's the Lord um over you know when we pray and he's the Lord over the medicine that we can use so that's one explanation for why he would say to use oil. Um, the other explanation is that um, at the same time, oil often had a very symbolic person throughout the New Testament. Um, it's kind of like a um, something that symbolizes some sort of consecration or being set apart in some way. So a lot of people say that to anoint with oil has more of a symbolic purpose to show that this person is being set apart in a way for some special attention to prayer. Um, now we don't typically practice anointing with oil, but in that context, um, there was probably kind of a a medicinal aspect as well as a symbolic and spiritual aspect for it. So that's kind of an explanation of the anointing. But what about the way that James seems to blend physical healing with spiritual forgiveness? Like in James 16, James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So is he saying that confessing sins leads to physical healing? Like that seems confusing. Or is he talking about spiritual healing here? Um, well, in verse 15, again, another thing is some translations say that the power of faith will save the one who is sick, and other translations say that it will make the sick person well. So which is it? Is spiritual healing or is it spiritual healing or is it physical healing? So throughout this section, there's kind of this like, he's kind of floating in and out and combining this idea of um, confession and prayer with physical healing and spiritual healing. It gets really muddy and confusing. So this is another area that when you research it, you'll find different explanations, like for what times is he talking about the body and what time is he talking about the spirit? And it's hard to nail down exactly what he meant. And I think it's possible that he meant both, that confession leads to spiritual forgiveness and heal and healing, as well as physical healing. Um, now, this is, this is very different. Um, this comes down to differences in the way that they viewed things versus the way that we do, because sin and sickness were often closely related in the ancient, ancient world. Um, One book that I was reading explained that to the Hebrews, mind, body, and spirit were all of one whole, and there was unity among the three in regards to health. So like for us, while we see physical healing and spiritual healing as two separate things, James's original audience kind of had a more holistic view of body and spirit, and they would have seen them as much more connected. And it wouldn't have seemed as confusing to them when James sort of floats between talking about physical healing and spiritual confession and forgiveness. So it's easy to kind of get hung up on, like, each specific an instance. Is he talking about physical or spiritual here? Um, but I think to them, it was so much more um, cohesive that they wouldn't have felt the need to, to um, separate it quite as much. And then the last tricky thing in this section is this question of faith leading to answered prayers. Um, When you read verse 15, it kind of feels a little bit like a promise. Like if a prayer is offered in faith, then the sick will definitely become well. It's kind of what we tend to see that as. Now this is a really important one to wrestle with because your theology on this can have major consequences. If you take this to mean that if you have enough faith, God promises healing to you, what does that mean then for people who pray but healing doesn't come? Like, are they supposed to then feel the shame and guilt of not having enough faith along with still not being healed? Like, that's incredibly unbiblical, and it's done a lot of damage. Um, Also here in James, the prayer he's talking about is elders praying over the sick. So does that mean if the elders pray or if some person prays and that person they pray for is not healed, then that elder or the person praying is at fault because they didn't believe well enough or they didn't have enough faith? Like, no, I don't think the Bible teaches anything like this. We don't see this like, across the board throughout the Bible. We know that God sometimes answers our prayers with a no, just like he did with Paul, who prayed for healing from some sort of thorn, is thorn in the flesh. Like he kind of prays several times for, there's some physical ailment that Paul prayed for healing from. Um, and the Lord did not answer that with a yes. He answered with, it, with a no. He did not heal him. So we have to be able to balance our prayers with the belief of God's sovereignty. Um, We have to know when we pray that God is God and he works all things for his good. God's not our genie. He's not there to bend to our will. God doesn't say, if you have strong enough faith, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Like, that's not how God works, because that would then make him under our authority. He is the one who is in authority. As Douglas Moo points out in his commentary on James, he says, to ask in Jesus's name means not simply to utter his name, but to take into account his will. So I kind of think that in that same sense, to pray in faith, like he says here, to pray in faith, it might have an element of not just praying in the faith that God could do it, but it's praying in the faith that God can do this, and He is good, and He is sovereign, and I trust His outcome. I trust what He says. I think faith has, is a lot more holistic than just saying, God, I believe God's going to do it. It's saying, I believe God could do it. I believe He is good. I believe He is for me, and I believe that whatever He allows into my life, He has in there for a reason. So I trust Him. So it's this balance of praying for our desires, but trusting in His sovereignty. And I think that faith has to encompass all of that um it's easy to get hung up on all these things like these are three hard things that we talked about things that to get hung up on but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees or whatever that saying is I might have said it backwards um so let's kind of take like more step back and take more of a big picture approach here who has the original audience been focused on throughout the whole letter the whole time themselves they have been focused on themselves. They're looking at themselves and their own struggles, what they're going through. And then think about who have they been looking to for help? The world, the empty promises of wealth and status. And so we've seen this this whole problem. They're looking at themselves and they're looking to the world as their savior. Now, in this conclusion, this last section, who is James turning their eyes to at the end of the letter? God, he's saying, quit looking to the world, look to God. Now, who is he? What else? Well, he's also saying, quit looking at yourselves. Think about others. How can you serve others? Pray for others. Be there for others. So he's taking their eyes off themselves and off of the promises of the world. And he's telling them, look to God and pray for each other. He takes it even further in the last two verses of the entire letter. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So you see, he's turning them not only upwards towards God's and outwards towards others, but he's turning them towards their ultimate calling as followers of Christ. He's showing them the ultimate way to love their neighbor, which is to be a part of God's redemptive work by leading other people back into right relationship with him. Now, a lot of letters or epistles, they kind of end with some sort of final greeting or benediction, but James here, he doesn't do that. He ends with a call to action, which is so fitting for James who loves to call us to be doers, huh? He ends with a call to action. We know he has told his readers time and time again to be doers of the word, not just hearers. So here with his conclusion, he's telling them don't just be doers, help others be doers as well. Don't just turn to God, lead, lead others to God as well. Now it's hard to imagine, it's not hard to imagine based on the rest of James's letter that a lot of believers had been led astray by these false idols. It seems like this has been a problem, and turning from these idols is not easy. How often do we wrestle with truth presented to us in scripture, but still have such a hard time doing the hard work of actually turning from sin and towards God? So James leaves his readers with the charge to help each other, help each other get off that second path that you keep finding yourselves on and get each other back onto the first. We have to help each other and do this in community. Guys, I think we can leave here with that same charge. We might have come to this study for how it could benefit us and that's okay let's leave this study though with our eyes focused upwards and outwards let's be doers of the word that we have studied these past several weeks let's pray for patience and perseverance in our trials let's work upwards to the promises of god and the spiritual riches that he offers and stop looking to the empty promises of the world Let's look outwards and embrace our calling as believers to love our neighbor and pray for each other more and serve one another. Let's be a part of God's work of redemption and restoration by sharing the gospel to others and leading others back into right relationship with him. Let's do all of these things so that whenever whatever trials that we're going through end, that we can look back on those times of trial with gratefulness on what God did in and through the trial so that we can experience the perseverance and spiritual riches that he offers. Let's not let our suffering be wasted. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the book of James and the encouragement that it gives. I thank you that you give us such a clear picture of what our sin can do to us and what our struggles can do to us. God, I pray that all of us here would take all of these words and apply them and live them out. I pray that whenever we encounter any kind of trial or suffering, whether it be a little everyday moment or a big life issue, that we would always um, to stay on that first path, that we would help each other to stay on that first path. I pray that we would be recognizing when those temptations are trying to call us onto the second path and that we would see the empty promises of it and that we would have hearts that want your riches more, that we would want what you're producing in us and through us more than the empty promises of the world. So God, I pray that we would leave here with the um, overall themes and messages of James burned into our hearts and that we would never forget it um, and that this would truly, truly change the way that we live. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.